Henry briefly mentioned Pajarito Bike Park. I don't know if that's ever been on your radar, but that's another New Mexico staple lift access bike park that's worth mentioning because... Like, I'm glad you brought it up because that's like one of our favorite bike parks. But it's just wild that you have this like gnarly, gnarly mountain that's just so salt of the earth. Like all these consistent dudes who like maintain the trails all volunteer, building wood features that are just massive, you know, and you're just like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they have a corkscrew there, like suspended <laughs> in the trees, which is pretty dirty and like with a cannon at the end. <laughs> yeah. Like if once you drop in, it's pretty committing and there's some pretty epic long log skinnies and yeah, even just the chairlift is pretty exciting to ride. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 160 features Henry and Janker of Rocket Ramps out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. We go deep on jumps and ramp design during this conversation, along with what's happening in their region of New Mexico. I can't thank these two guys enough for reaching out to be guests in this show because we had a ton of fun with this conversation. As described here, New Mexico is about to get on your radar as a place to ride if it hasn't been already. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Trail One Components, the mountain bike component brand that was created to provide the best quality mountain bike components while giving back to the trails with every purchase of their products. My favorite Trail One components are the Crockett Handlebar, the Rockville Stem, and the Hell's Gates Grips. For a 20% discount on all Trail One components, use the coupon code TRAILPOD at checkout. By using this coupon code, you are not only supporting trails, but a small commission can come back to the Trail Effect and help support the show. Now on to the Trail Effect with Janker and Henry of Rocket Ramps. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Henry Landman, the uh, geologist and dreamer of rocket ramps. And I also have Janker Ted, who we're going to call the racer, but he's now the operator. I'm sure they both, I'm sure they both operate, but I just, I had to come up with some kind of nicknames for these guys. But these are two of the three people behind rocket ramps and rocket ramps is a company based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is in a state that doesn't have a ton of trail builders and trail building happening. Although there are some of the most iconic places to ride, such as Angel Fire and Glorietta. Those are two places that a lot of people like to talk about in terms of where to go ride. Other than that, there's not a lot of stuff coming out from New Mexico. So it was pretty awesome to have Henry reach out to me to get this one put together. So how's it going today, you two? Doing pretty good, brother. Thanks for uh, having us on. Good to be live out in the world. Well, let's go. Yeah, with- thanks for having us, Josh. Yeah, oh, for sure. I, well, thank you for reaching out because it's, it's always good to get more 
trail building specific content, especially in the world of ramps and public bike parks, because that seems to be a theme that we've been just organically taking on to taking on more of the, with this podcast. So let's go to Henry first and let's talk about the the rocket ramp formation and how that came to be. Yeah, it's kind of funny how it all it all started. You know, a, a friend, a mutual friend of Ted and I's, uh, Adam Craig, who, you, you know, I'm sure your listeners are more than familiar with. And uh, he's a friend of mine from Bend. Um, I actually built trail with him out there. And he's a racing friend of Ted's. And so uh, I was living out in Bend, Oregon for, for a number of years and trail building, working in shops and doing whatever. And then uh, my girlfriend and I moved back to Santa Fe. And when I did, Adam was like, yo, you need to hang out with Janker Ted. You know, I'll get you guys linked up. And it's still up for debate. Like if he sent an email or a text, it would be very Adam if he sent an email, <laughs> but we couldn't email, find yeah. the email. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, like, you know, we, Ted and I kind of went back and forth. We finally linked up and, and started riding bikes together and it clicked. And we kind of had been talking about, you know, building trail because we were like building jumps out in the hills and stuff. And, um, you know, both doing different occupations that weren't trail building, but we were, you know, linking up to build jumps and trails and stuff. And so we had always talked about it. And, uh, you know, about a year or two later, I ended up buying an excavator thinking, you know, let's, let's do it. And Ted moved back into town after working in Missouri and uh, Bentonville and stuff. And, you know, we joined forces in LLC and started, started doing it. So kind of wild. And like, you know, looking back on it, it's like, we took a big step together, you know, like totally altering the courses of our lives and it's worked out so well. You know, I think like our friendship, is even stronger than it was before um, starting this business. And it's really special to go to work every day with a really good friend and then be able to have hard conversations and like come out on, you know, on top and be, have a stronger relationship and, and do better work, you know, because there's good communication there. And, you know, there's always a fear that, you know, if you go into work with a good friend or, a business partner or whatever that things could sour, but it's kind of done the opposite. So it's pretty cool. You have anything you want to add on that, Ted, on that formation? Uh, yeah, I, I think it was just pretty, I want to say magical how it all played out. Cause we always loosely talked about it when we were, when we just met up, you know, and again, we were working different jobs and I think, you know, I could speak for both of us by saying it was always a dream to one day, you know, be like, let's, let's do a company in New Mexico. And sure enough, we each found someone that and naturally just worked out with and yeah, yeah, pretty awesome, pretty sweet. And it's cool to do it in our, in our home state here and keep building the scene and yeah, just, I don't know. Yeah. It's super special. And yeah, we have so much fun with it. So yeah. Why do you think the trail building scene isn't super strong in New Mexico? The only other builder that I know of that was in New Mexico building a long time ago is Tony Boone. He had a, he had a company in, in New Mexico for a while. Jagged Axe might be back out there now. I haven't, I've only met the person behind Jagged Axe once, but it, as far as the state goes, it, you guys have a ton of really good topography. Yeah. yeah. I could talk a little bit about that too. I think there's a number of factors that Ted and I've talked about um, that make mountain biking towns good right or prosperous right and you you know i thought 
going on too much of a tangent, like if you think about Whistler, you have like incredible glacial till soil, right? That's like developed over, you know, thousands of years in a like really humid and moist climate, right? And you get really good material to build trail. Then you have the infrastructure that's already there for skiing. You have topography that's not super steep and not super mellow. And then you're right next to Vancouver, so people can fly in, right? So there's all these factors. And when you think about New Mexico, kind of in the middle of nowhere, you know? And it's funny when we're like trying to get our friends to come out from the West Coast or the East Coast or whatever, you know, they're like, dude, I got to drive 24 hours to get to you, you know? Like, like it's already a push to go to like Virgin or something, right? You know, let alone like all the way to New Mexico, like six hours further than Moab and six hours further than Sedona, right? So, and so I think some of the other factors too, other than being kind of isolated or New Mexico is like traditionally a pretty poor state and like, you know, like there's not a lot of money coming in um, like there is in other areas. There is some like tourist money coming in here and there. But I think why like we're able to do the trail building now and why I don't think it's worked out super well in the past is there's there's a lot more state programs that are like trying to prop up New Mexico businesses in the outdoor rec space. And so, you know, here we are with a trail building business and, you know, them trying to build an outdoor economy and we're right there, you know? And so there's also a lot of land management issues. Um, you know, there's forest service uh, entities that won't work with mountain bike groups. There's BLM entities that won't work with mountain bike groups, tons of private land and people with zero interest in any sort of mountain bike action going on, you know? So yeah, it's multifaceted, but I think it's changing for the better which is cool. I think that there's a lot of cool stuff that's going to come out of New Mexico in the next, like, I would say year. Um, and then the, you know, the five to 10 year plan is going to be pretty stunning. So it's on the come up. <laughs> How about you, Jenker? Ted, do you got something you'd like to add on that note? Mm, uh, I mean, well, I just want to, I was gonna, I didn't want to interrupt, but when you were mentioning Jagged Axe and Alex Scott, I actually, he was the first trail building contractor that I was employed by and i was around in new mexico when alex was first starting like glorietta and i was pretty young at the time and it was just so eye-opening to see that like mountain bike trail building was a thing because i didn't really realize it was like a career that just it was just so cool to see him out there doing it and developing glorietta and um yeah, I was like, oh, wow, this is like a real thing. Because I I mean, I grew up riding Angel Fire, you know, I've been riding there for the past 10 years. And I knew that that was a thing, but it, in a bike park sense. But as far as like mountain bike specific trail, that's, you know, just I mean, that's uh, privately owned land. But it was just really amazing to see that all unfold. And I got to help him a fair amount before I worked for him, which was cool. He was like generous enough to include me and check it all out because we raced together grew up racing together a little bit so yeah i don't know i just wanted to shout out alex and uh, jagged axe because you know him and his dad anthony scott were a big part of uh getting our company off the ground and it was really cool that they were super encouraging for us to like do it even though like he's not currently based out of new mexico but he's in arkansas but yeah, he was just a really big help. And it was, and he, I mean, for me at least, he definitely inspired me on mountain bike trail building in New Mexico and that it's, you know, possible. So, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask what, 
who you were tied into or what where you built at when you were in Arkansas and Missouri, and that makes a ton of sense. But maybe you could dive into a couple of those locations. Yeah, yeah. So primarily the project that I was a part of was uh, Shepherd Mountain in Ironton, Missouri. Yeah, <laughs> which was such a super incredible, unique experience. You know, it was my first time moving out of New Mexico. You know, I'd never visited the area, never been to Missouri or Arkansas. But um, yeah, being a part of that project and seeing how trails really impact a community was really cool to see unfold because I was living there for nine months and I wasn't there from the true start of the project, but I was pretty much there for the meat of it. And it was a small, pretty small crew, just me and three other builders. And yeah, it was just cool to be fully immersed in that project. And have you visited that park? I feel like I listened to a podcast where you talked to Dave Coolio. Yeah, I did. Ha- I did do a show with Dave Coolio, and I got mm-hmm. connected with him from Steve Friedman, who I think knows everybody in the world. Yeah, yeah. But I have not been to Shepherd yet, and I say yet because okay. I will get there. Uh, the only place I've actually ridden in Missouri would would be Howler, and that was two times coming back coming home from Bentonville last fall. So I haven't been to Shepherd yet. Gotcha. But uh, yeah, I mean, that mountain's pretty, pretty awesome. Again, not a ton of vert, right, for what what I'm used to back home. But for what they had in the terrain, I think we really crafted something pretty special out there. And again, that community was so supportive and they were so excited to make it happen. And it was really cool to finish phase one with Jagged Axe. And yeah, I'm excited to go back to see how it's doing. But just from following on social media, it looks like it's still going really strong. And we built a couple tracks for the big mountain enduro, which is really cool to be a part of to like actually craft some race stages, which having a racing background was cool to like really dive into it. And unfortunately I didn't race that BME, but yeah, it seemed like from all the feedback I heard from my buddies and, you know, from the interwebs, people seem pretty surprised and it seems like it was a good venue for a big mountain enduro, which was cool that they were kind of branching out to the, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the Midwest or the South, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, you know, when you get a community and builders like excited and back behind it, it's, it's cool that, uh, you can make something really special. So yeah, that was awesome. A really great thing to be a part of for sure. Yeah. I think BME is still doing something in that region, but, but now they move further South and, uh, towards Mount Nebo you know, but it, but oh, it, it's yeah. awesome to see that they're still including, you know, something in the, in the core of the country. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Cause I mean, the mountain bike scene out there, I mean, I didn't really know much of a mountain bike scene out there until I moved out there and in Arkansas and Bentonville. And it was so cool to see how many people were stoked on bikes and building new trails and yeah, they're just all about it out there. So super cool. Very unique for sure. Yeah. Well, let's get into the, the goals of rocket ramps. Cause this is an interesting one to me. Cause you know, we've talked about traditional trail building and, and buying an excavator, but not many companies kind of dive into the wrap manufacturing side of things. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I personally like seeing this because of all the reasons that you guys probably did this, which is having a, a repeatable quality experience, having something that is low maintenance, you know, just all the things that you almost need to ha- need to have if it's going to be part of public infrastructure, right? So yeah, let's dive into that. Yeah, I can talk about the goals and stuff and kind of how that came about. And I think this kind of speaks to like our experiences, dirt jumpers and free riders and 
you know, basically jumpers, right? And like, you know, for me, like I've been building dirt jumps since I was like, I don't know, 10, 12 years old or something. And some of my mentors that I still like, we still see and ride with, like one of them, this guy, Ed, you know, he's 52 and he learned how to backflip at 50, you know, and he's like part of the original kind of like rampage crew, you know, like, or that, that community and that generation. Um, and like these mentors, like, you know, they taught, they taught me, they, they taught, you know, others in the community on how to build jumps and whatever. Right. And, but like taking that a step further and being a little bit more critical about it, like, you know, you can pack a jump in, um, you know, make it look good and, you know, make it kind of smooth, but it might hit totally wrong. So like, how do you create a repeatable experience? Right. And, you know, for me that, that process started in high school and like building wood ramps, you know, and going on vital and being like, all right, what's a design, you know? And, you know, there's a billion people out there that'll tell you, you know, the correct radius and the height and all this stuff. And you ride it and you're like, I guess, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's like, you know, you can, you can look around the internet, you can try and like find something that's going to work for you. But at the end of the day, like, you know, there's so many factors that go into like making a jump work for your ability, your bicycle, right? What kind of bike you have and uh, what kind of riding you're looking to do and uh, what your fundamentally your goals are, right? Are you trying to learn how to jump or are you trying to learn how to do a backflip? Because those are two very different ramps and some people will tell you they're going to be the same. And so, you know, back when we kind of started rocket ramps it started as this like pipe dream of like well let's put together all these different radiuses and like radii for that matter and changing radiuses and whatever and figure out like well when are these applications or when should we use these different designs like what applications right and then let's build off that so um you know coming back to new mexico being a great space for this you know we have a great relationship with the city of santa fe and we'd build a prototype ramp and we'd go put it in at our local dirt jumps and they were psyched, you know, and we'd go ride it. And if it didn't work, we'd pull it out and we'd put a new one in, you know, and we'd change it. And so it was a great place to do R and D work where we had the freedom there. We didn't need like our own property or whatever. And then the community got to use it. So we got to be like, Oh, this kid on a 20 inch bike who just learned how to ride is like hitting our three foot ramp and he likes it. Well, what's the distance he's hitting it at? You know, should we play around with it? Like, you know, it's like a great place to R and D. So kind of circling back to like the goals of this, this company or, you know, half the company, right? The other half, we're building a lot of trail and stuff. And the other half, you know, we're building ramps. They go hand in hand, but the goal is to create a wide variety of ramps, both that like the individual consumer can buy, which is like different than a lot of contractors, you know, like PTD, where you need like an entity to purchase ramps and also, you know, ramps that an entity can buy that will last for 50 years at a bike park, right? Um, we're about to launch our uh, a line of metal ramps actually coming up here in the next couple months. So we've been working in the background on those. Um, we're doing an install for those. So, so anyway, yeah, goals create a wide variety of ramps for the individuals, for the nonprofits, for the municipalities that are going to allow beginners through experts to like learn how to jump, learn how to jump better, and also learn how to do tricks. I think that that kind of covers the goals. You think that answered, that was a long-winded answer for it, but. <laughs> That's the good thing about podcasts. You can be super long-winded. Oh yeah. I know exactly. And it's normal. 
<laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I that I've seen and I came across I come across pretty regularly is the fact that you got what I'm gonna say is the old school dirt jump style ramp. And then on top of that, you have modern bike geometry, which is getting longer, right? And so wheelbases are getting longer. Just the the whole the landscape is changing in terms of bikes and how they interact with ramps. And I think a lot of times, especially if jumps or ramps interchangeably used here are at are near a trailhead, a lot of your users are hitting them on, we're going to say a trail bike, you know? So let's talk about the evolution of like how ramps either should be or are evolving within our world. Spot on. And that's right in line with our, our vision. So I'm glad you brought that up. You know, this might make some uh, hardcore dirt jumpers upset, but really like dirt jump bikes are pump track, pump track bikes now, you know, like, you know, you don't, you, when you go to a bike park, people are on trail bikes, you know, it's, that's just kind of how it is now. And like, that's a function of a lot of things, you know, I mean, I think that like, you know, modern bike geometry for the average trail bikes really catching up. Right. It's not just like you're on a downhill bike or a dirt jump bike. Right. I mean, you go back 20 years, like back when I started dirt jumping, it's like, you know, you're on a downhill bike or a dirt jump bike. You, there's no way you'd ride a cross country bike or a all mountain bike or a super D bike or whatever you want to call it on the jumps, you know, so some dudes did, but you know, you're on a 180 mil free ride bike or something or a dirt jumper. So anyway, yeah, the modern geometry for jumping isn't, it's not just reserved for jump bikes exclusively. Now it's kind of bled in, but, and there's other factors too, more people on bikes, more bike parts, yada, 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 but but yeah, like expert and pro level dirt jumps, kind of like old school, if you will, you know, they're always going to be steep and technical, right? Like, you know, I'm up in Summit County right now, right next to the, you know, the jump doctors Frisco bike park, you know, those jumps are some of the steepest public jumps around. Right. And like, you can ride them on a trail bike, but it's not as fun. Right. Yeah. So I think the way that things need to change um, and kind of like our philosophy is like small to medium sized jumps need to grow. And like, and I don't mean like, you know, let's just make like people need to like hit a bigger jump to get better. It's like, no, 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 no. It's just like, you know, a physically small jump doesn't really mean a beginner jump. You know, if you have a foot, you know, a foot high lip, that's like a fly out, like you're not going to develop good jumping habits. I mean, your front wheel is like, in the air before the rear tire is even hitting the transition, you know? So it's like, things need to mellow out, you know, things need to be, uh, you need to get the whole bike on the ramp, you know, you can't have the wheels doing different things at different times. Right. Um, and I think like, ironically, like if, you know, our seven foot airbag ramp, I think that really speaks to this because, you know, like the seven foot airbag ramp, like sitting alone, people are like, I'd never go off that, you know, like at the like Bentonville bike fest, right. They're like, I'd never do that. You know? And we're like, you know what though? Like if that thing's pushed up against the landing and we like buried it all, like you'd probably go off it. Right. And like, you know, if, if you're an intermediate rider and you want to become better and you want to like potentially learn how to do a 360 or a backflip, you need a big lip like that to really learn it. And cause the whole bike's on the ramp, you know, if you're trying to do stuff on a smaller ramp, it's so much harder. So, but yeah, then like, you know, if these features are getting bigger, if you have small or like beginner and intermediate features getting bigger, you know, you're going to need to cater the, the gap size, the, the radius of the takeoff radiuses, radii, and then the landings as well. So like, you know, tight radii is going to buck, 
with a super long wheelbase bike, whereas a radius that's too mellow, you're not going to get that compression and that release that you want to learn to get hang time, you know? So, um, yeah, I think we're seeing features grow and I think, you know, we're catering our ramps towards that as well. And I guess something I wanted to mention earlier too, is like, you know, there's a big push in the industry to like, to do coaching. And I think that's great. Like more people getting involved, like let's develop bike handling skills. So like all users can be safe on the trails and like be confident. And like, you know, you go to the bike park, you're going to ride some like hammered jump, you know, that's like rolled off with rocks in the lip. And like, you expect to learn how to jump on that. Like, you know, I don't care how many times you hit it, like it's going to be inconsistent. Right. And so our goals with like our skills parks and our, you know, our, all our ramps across the board is to, you know, cater the, the ability level to the ramp to be like, here's a consistent feel that's going to make it really easy for you to learn how to jump a bike or, you know, learn how to do a trick. Right. Oh, for sure. Let's get, uh, let's get Jenker Ted's take on, on this since he's been, you know, pretty quiet here. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like Henry pretty much covered all the, the guts of it, but, uh, yeah, I mean the long bikes, man, you know, you want, you want the right lip for them, especially with a ton of rear suspension, you can get in trouble pretty quick with the, you know, single radius, you know, five, six foot lip, you know, like you just take your enduro bike to the skate park and you can get pretty weird pretty quick. So yeah, I think the, the blends of radiuses and are different, not going to give out too many details, but yeah, I just think catering to the longer bikes, you know, is really important. Cause like you're saying, you know, people aren't getting into mountain biking usually with just a dirt jumper. It's a full suspension bike and, you know, all our, all our little like local after work jams that we have at the, at our local skills park in Santa Fe. Yeah. Pretty much 80% of those people are on, you know, trail bikes. And so, yeah, having a, a product that caters to a mountain bike is, uh, is key for sure for safety and just a, a good overall experience for progression. So, yeah. Without going into specifics, if you're a bike geek or a trail geek like me and probably you too as well, there's a website uh -huh. out there known as Trailism. Mm. And if you go to Trailism in their jump design page, you see things like the mysterious isochronous curve, which is basically a compound curve in my opinion. But like I said, without going into the numbers, like just talk about the difference of that in a, in a straight, you know, straight radius. Yeah, I can touch on that. I mean, all, yeah, without going like super deep into the weeds here, I mean, you know, depending on the size of the ramp, right. And the wheelbase of your bike, right. That's going to give you a certain feel. If it's super tight, you're going to buck. If it's super chill, so you're not going to get any air. And as the ramps get taller and taller, you know, if you have a 10 foot rolling and a six foot tall ramp, well, you're not going to be going full speed at the top of the ramp, right? So you need to start to think about, you know, how does the curvature of your, your lip need to cater to the changes in speed? And, you know, that goes on the flip side. Like, you know, I remember, I don't know if you had Kyle J on the podcast ever. I haven't. Him and I were, we're actually going back and forth about a year ago in between the schedule, okay. both my schedule and his schedule just didn't line up, but I've been meaning to reach back out to him. Okay. Yeah. Cause he, he taught me a lot about like, you know, big lip curvature 
And, you know, frankly, like a lot of the like dark fest videos and stuff talk about the same things, you know, when they get into the nitty gritty of lip construction about like how much flat you need to have, you know, on a big lip. Right. And like where, like, you know, something we've learned is like, well, you put too much flat at the end of a lip, it's dead. You know, if you like change the curvature too much, then it'll flip you over the bars. Right. And it's kind of this, like, you know, you got to weigh these different things, you know, as the ramp changes in height, it's going to change in, in feel. Yeah. It's kind of hard to talk around this without like really going into the numbers, but you you don't need to go (laughs) into the numbers. Yeah. But we can go into other parts of your ramp and that is you talked about metal, but right now, aside from metal, you have a pretty unique design in terms of the materials are made from and how they're manufactured. And talk about why you went that the route that you did in terms of the construction of your ramps and, and even the fact that they're freestanding ramps. They're not even, you know, soil, soil anchored into the ground. Yeah, I can, I can touch on that a little bit. So, I mean, you know, before we even launched the, the product that you see on our website now is, um, you know, we were initially you know, designing the curvatures of these ramps and all the nice clean lines on, on CAD with Raja. And then we were able to get, we we're initially just using like three quarter inch, like cabinet grade ply uh, and CNC cutting it all out, which is really nice because you get a nice clean, consistent cut and you're able to blend different radiuses together seamlessly. Right. Which like, if you're trying to do that with a jigsaw, <laughs> it's going to get a little jagged, pretty sketched, pretty quick. So when we were doing all the research and development on our ramps, we, you know, we had our, our design pretty close out of wood, but a couple things like shipping, I mean, well, first the, the labor and like cost to going into prepping, like, you know, cabinet grade plywood, like, you know, painted and like sealing it. So it can actually withstand the elements. We're like, you know, like we're not really painters, <laughs> Like we're ramp designers, we're trail builders and, you know, we're like woodworkers, but we didn't, we didn't really want to get into the whole painting scheme and also like packing painted wood. Like, you know, there's the worry of it wearing out and like rubbing and stuff. So we, we settled on the idea of using a HDPE plastic and it's, it's pretty much, it's like a high density plastic that you would see on like playgrounds, like with the siding, you know, and you can get it in a bunch of different colors and textures and stuff and we we're like oh sweet we can get this cnc cut and it's plastic it's uv resistant and it's you know it, it wears really good in the elements i mean it doesn't wear at all compared to like wood or painted wood yeah and it's just like a really bomber material and you can customize colors and just like the product like when we cut them out in the cnc and then we'll bevel the edges on it and just like it just really looks like a really nice like high quality product versus if you purchased a ramp that was, you know, CNC cuts nice, but if it was painted, it would look, you know, a little sketch. So the, the plastic was a really cool way for us to achieve, you know, like a long lasting ramp that you could set in your yard, you know, and it's not going to degrade after a season and the plywood's not going to warp, you know, and all the decking that we use on our ramps is, is uh, cedar, you know, and it's, it's nominal lumber. So the consumer can purchase the ramp kit online, even without the decking, put it all together and we'll have a cut sheet for you. And you can just go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy a couple sticks of two by sixes, you know, and even with just a circular saw, as long as you can get a square cut, you can deck and uh, build the entire ramp. So it's, you can kind of purchase it in two different ways as a kit, or we can 
cut all the lumber and do all the pre-drilling for you. But the plastic was a really cool idea and we hadn't really seen anyone doing that before. So it was a great way to make the product act actually last, you know, outside the elements, you don't have to cover it or anything like that. So the, the plastic's really cool for sure. It's, it's heavy, but also that goes really well as a standalone ramp, as you're saying, because it's, it's a heavy ramp, but you don't have to anchor it down. You can just build it up in your yard, set up a landing and just hit it. So it's kind of like a Ikea kit, right? Of furniture, but a ramp. So, and the way that we have it designed, especially with our bigger ramps, like the five and seven, like the radius breaks down into two pieces. So you're not getting this massive, I mean, it's still a big package, but compared to shipping, like, you know, seven foot tall ramp, like that radius piece would be massive. Like, I don't know how we'd be able to ship that. So yeah. Yeah. And I'll also say that like, you know, using the HTP plastic poses like a whole other set of like engineering challenges. And like, that's where Raja stepped in and was like huge for us. Cause like, I mean, we could build a, you know, a CNC, like we'll get our radiuses CNC cut. Right. And then we'll frame it out however we want. And then it's just ungodly heavy, you know, and whatever. But then, you know, the minute you start trying to drop weight and be minimal with it, you know, then like, you're going to have to be way more intentional about all our parts. Right. And so for example, like, you know, our HDP pieces, the radius cuts on our seven foot ramp, and actually, actually on all of them, what am I saying? They all come together, you know, at that center rib or excuse me, not the center rib, but um, in the center of the radii cuts, right? And, you know, the plastic is soft. And like, if you just made like a traditional joint and you wrote it, like it would do this and it would just like splooge out. So we had to think about like, well, how are we going to create a strong joint around this, right? And this is where, you know, our like, <laughs> you know, five, six year seasoned architect you know, friend who's just like, Oh, I got all these ideas, you know, he's integrating all these different joints he learned in school and like different materials that worked well together. And then with the CNC guy, like talking about tolerances, you know, until we arrived at something like with these plates that hold, hold our pieces together that create, they make it ridiculously strong. Right. Whereas if you didn't do that and you just had a single cutout, it would just get all wobbly and like whatever else. Right. So yeah, we had to really think about how that ramp was going to go together or all these ramps really, you know, with that plastic in mind, because it's totally different than working with wood. Let's go into your ramp sizes because you have three sizes and, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe even as a consumer, how, you know, how they get shipped and, and what that actually looks like from a, from a consumer side. Yeah. So currently like I'll say we have a spreadsheet of like probably like 20 or 30 ramps. <laughs> And that like, you know, it has all the different heights, what they're good for, the different radius changes, like all this stuff. Right. And before we like fully dove in and like committed to like, you know, designing all these ramps, we're like, let's test the waters with these three. Right. And we figured we could launch with, you know, here's a three foot ramp that like, you know, anyone could ride, we think. And it's like really good for learning how to jump a five foot ramp. Um, and actually we're currently in the process of updating that where there's actually two different ones, like a big bike ramp and then like more of a. 20 inch, um, airbag ramp, which like is definitely where we get a lot of interest and then our seven foot ramp. And so the seven foot ramp we think is the perfect trick learning ramp, um, that pairs nicely with airbags. So, um, talked a lot with various airbag manufacturers, um, you know, about their sizes and their wants, right. And kind of like worked relationships with them to kind of send clients back and forth, you know, and, um, 
so yeah, we, those are the three we currently have. Um, and you know, as far as like receiving that, you know, as a consumer, like you can go onto our website and you can put it in your cart and you can order it. Um, and you'll get, um, depending on the ramp, like anywhere between like one and three packages. Um, and it'll be like Ikea, you like pull out the instructions, you know, you got your hardware, you got your ramp pieces, you got your wood and you just start putting it together um, via the instructions. Um, and, you know, I think we've gotten really streamlined at it cause we've put a bunch together and taken a bunch apart. Um, you know, but like the three foot ramp you could put together in about an hour. If everything, if you line everything out, you know, um, and then, you know, the bigger ramps, like the seven foot ramp and stuff like that'll probably take two to three, um, just cause it's bigger. You probably need two people to make it way easier, you know, and then, um, and then you got to move it around and stuff, but, um, and then our metal ramps, you know, those are like fully custom. So the, the park we're doing right now, a project in Santa Fe, you know, we've got four of these steel ramps coming down and we just like totally like geeked out on what we thought would be best for the trail, you know, and different heights and radii and whatever, you know, and then our, uh, steel ramp fabricator out of Bend, Oregon, Bogue Designs, um, he welded it all up and, um, you know, he's going to bring them down and we're going to put them in. So it's pretty much like whatever you want for those, <laughs> you know, and like we were talking earlier, it's like, you know, if somebody came up to us and was like, Hey, we want this skills park done. We want X, Y, and Z for, uh, ability lines and, you know, and here's our grade and whatever, like we can like talk it out with you and be like, here are all these different custom measurements we would use, you know, and then we think this will like be the best experience. And then you want to add to that, Ted? Um, no, no, it's pretty spot on. Yeah. I think you got it covered. I was going to ask about the manufacturing side of it. I was going to I was going to say, is that, do you have a local CNC guy, but you mentioned Bend Oregon as a, as a manufacturer, but are you getting the, uh, like the plastic stuff CNC right there in Santa Fe or, or in Albuquerque or that region? Uh, yeah, we actually do have a local guy, um, here just outside of Santa Fe, uh, which is pretty cool. And then, um, uh, all our metal pieces are fabricated by, uh, bogey designs in, in Oregon, like our, all our custom brackets and our splice plates. But yeah, I mean for the, yeah, it's cool to do the CNC locally for sure. Yeah. Also have a local, um, he's a frame builder, um, O'Leary bicycles out of Santa Fe he makes these amazing bikes and involved in the community and, um, trail advocacy and land stewardship and stuff. And he has a powder coat booth. So he does all our powder coating. Right. So it's like, you know, we order our plastic. It shows up in Albuquerque. We drive it to the CNC guy in Lamy, New Mexico, which is just outside Albuquerque. We pick up the parts, bring those back. And then, you know, we drop off our metal parts at O'Leary and then he powder coats them. So it's cool. We have this like really awesome network of, of riders, really. They're all riders <laughs> and they all love, love riding jumps and riding trails. And it's like, they're stoked on this and, you know, they love to be a part of it. So I'm glad we can keep it all local and it like financially makes sense to us, you know, cause I don't know, we care about, you know, having the community involved and not just being some entity that's just like moving all over the place and bringing stuff in from Taiwan or whatever, you know, let's go into the community. So when I was doing some research and we're going to probably bounce all over the place on this one, but I came, I, and you have this on your website too, but I also dug a little bit deeper into some other places, but one of the trails you built outside of your community, but in the region, is chips and salsa. Let's let's go into the trail building side of things and and 
talk about that specific trail and why it's got the attention it has. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll chime in on that. So yeah, that uh that trail that was built out at Glorietta Camps, where as I mentioned earlier, Jagged Axe started the started the building scene out there. And again, like that, I feel like that trail was uh, what really got our name out there because it was pretty exciting to have, you know, like in in New Mexico and in Santa Fe specifically, like it's not every day or every year that a new trail pops up. So we were super excited to build, you know, a true blue machine built flow trail with black, like extra credit, like AB line options, you know, so it's still fun for a wide range of riders. And yeah, that we had a lot of fun with that one. That was definitely, uh, yeah, that the terrain there is like really challenging to build with the, with the soil type and the rock and, you know, flagging that trail is definitely tricky, but we were pretty, pretty stoked with how it came out and seeing, I mean, even to this day, we still hear a bunch of our buddies and local people in the community of how much they love that trail and how it's like helped progress their riding and yeah, that was definitely a really fun project for sure. What do you got to add to that, Henry? Yeah, I think something that we kind of talked about from the get-go, and I think we kind of fell into it, and then we we actively talked about it of like, let's build a blue flow trail the way we want to ride a blue flow trail. And like let's like let's take blue riders and let's put them on a trail that will like allow them to ride faster and feel more confident like hitting a burn harder or a a jump harder and obviously giving options and stuff too. But I think that was like our idea of a blue flow trail, you know, and like people will be like, Oh, there's braking bumps developing and like two of the turns. And you're like, okay, well like you got brakes on your bike. So you should probably use them. (laughs) I'd rather break than, than pedal. But I think, yeah, it like, that was our vision of like where we see like blue flow going. And, uh, I think it was received really well and that's you know we're really proud of how it how it all worked out and so yeah i think it was an accelerator for our business because it was like the first real trail that we had done together that was like mountain bike specific um and also one of the first mountain bike specific trails that was built in the area in years you know um and so it got a lot of attention and like i think it got a lot of people coming to us for you know various projects like i think that project really helped us land like this project we're doing right now, which is um, a series of downhill specific shuttle trails on national forest land outside Albuquerque. Right. And like, this is going to be like a hot spot of shuttling, you know, and it's free. And we're like, cool, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Keep doing this same style of, of blue flow and, you know, and, uh, and some harder stuff down the road. But yeah, it was an accelerator. It definitely like kickstarted a lot of things. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a fun one, fun working with Ted. <laughs> Let's expand on the concept of blue flow with features, because this is something that I had asked to get built where I live here in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And we actually got built back in 2019. We built a trail that is locals in La Crosse will know it as Jedi. And it's basically just that it's a blue flow trail with black options. And the whole point of it was exactly what you guys said, you know, give that progression. So somebody could literally roll down it, not get any air. It almost, I mean, I would say it's green, except for the, the grade doesn't allow it to be green. Right. 
And so, but that person can roll down it and they can start picking off optional features one by one and eventually put the whole thing together. And this is also a concept that the infamous Glenn Jacobs out of Australia went in on pretty deep when him and I talked. But let's get your guys' take on this because clearly this is something that you guys have latched onto and are continuing to do. Um, you want to take it, Ted? <laughs> wait. Let's iterate on this, the concept of blue flow with black options and how that is something I, I prefer. I mean, I would like to see more of that integrated mm-hmm. into, the, into the world of trails more generally speaking, but let's get your guys' take on that, that concept. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like what Henry briefly touched on is like, you know, it's, well, at Glorietta specifically with chips and salsa, it's like you, that's not a shuttle access trail, right? So you're, you're pedaling up, you know, two and a half, whatever miles up, you know, and it's a decent climb, right? And by the time you get to the top, at least in our opinion, it's like, cool, once you drop in, ideally you should be able to ride this trail without a chain, right? And because you have, you know, front and rear brakes, four piston, you know, all the all the amazing equipment that we have today, you know, it's just nice to be able to just roll down and, and cruise down it without having to pedal. But if you really want to give it on it, there's those options there that you'll see every time you ride down it and you'll think, okay, yeah, one day, you know, I could, I could hit that optional lip or I'll go for that black diamond, you know, go around or whatever. But I think it's just really awesome to have options throughout a trail, but, you know, having the rating, like as the mainline blue, you know, it just makes it so there's just such a wide variety of riders that can ride it and enjoy it all together. You know, it's not just primarily blue and you take some pro racer bros on there and they're not psyched. Like, I think it just, it, it pleases all for sure, which is yeah, really fun. And, and like some of the lines kind of like intersect and cross the trail, like one of the really key features on it that we got lucky with, with the natural rock train there was this lily pad that i mean it's honestly kind of like a double black extra which is cool because it's like it's a you jump like in between where the trail crosses over and then land on this rock island and then it's got a little bit of natural kick at the end of it and you jump off that onto a landing so it's like a pretty exciting little feature where like if you're riding with your green or blue buddy you know you can like jump over him through this little crevasse and like lily pad over and he'll see that, you know, and they'll get all psyched to maybe try it one day. So I think just like for, you know, a beginner intermediate rider to see those features around the trail and, you know, just get inspired to one day to work up to it, which is cool. You just reminded me of some stuff you can find at Lake Leatherwood. Oh yeah. I've never been there, but I've heard they've got some nasty stuff like that. There's some, yeah, there's some lily pad stuff there. Yeah. Nice. I wanted to touch on something Ted said that I think is kind of integral to what we're, we've, we're trying to do with like the blue flow vibe is like fun for all. Like truly, I think that like, and that's not trying to be like cliche or whatever. I think that like, you know, when I think about like really fun blue trails, like in my mind, I think about like, I don't even know if this is rated as blue, but it's probably not. But like uh, Doctors Park outside Crested Butte. Or like the Windsor Trail, um, which I guess is blue, which is outside uh, Santa Fe. And it's like, you can, you know, you'll hit 30, 40 miles an hour if you want to, you know, and then there'll be a left-hand turn with no speed kill, right? And I think that like a lot of these really iconic trails, Oak Ridge, another great example, like all the trails out in Oak Ridge, all these old CCC trails that have had like mountain bike adaptations, you know, they're 
they're fun. They're fast. You can, you can pretty much go as fast as you want on them. And, you know, your grade isn't like ridiculously steep. And, you know, I think that that's fun for really like expert riders. And it's also fun for beginners because they can, they can regulate their speed. Um, and then peppering in those, you know, those features, um, that you can work up to, right. And integrating those features in a way where a beginner rider can actually hit it because they don't, they're not holding speed. Right. Or an expert rider will just get shot straight into it. They'll fall out of the berm or a beginner will fall out of the berm. Whereas an expert will hit a shark fin out of it. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, just, just trying to make the, the blue flow fun for as many people as possible, not just like great reversal snake, you know, <laughs> which like that comes at a cost, right. You know, I don't want to like act like it's like all hunky dory, right. Like maintenance goes up and, you know, depending on your soil types and where you are and all that, like it all changes. Right. So there's all those considerations, but when the terrain allows and having a strong nonprofit base to like help maintain trails after they're put in, you know, or maintenance contracts with us, you know, like great. <laughs> Speaking of nonprofits, when I was looking up you guys' stuff in Santa Fe specifically, the Santa Fe Fat Tire Society appears to be the local trail organization. Let's talk about that organization because with other builders that I've been talking to recently, they had talked about the partnerships they had with an organization like the Fat Tire Society or in Colorado at the Front Range, you'd have Comba, right? I think like Fat Tire is incredible. Like they're a great organization. And I think like growing up, like when we were Groms, right, it was like the old dude bike club, you know, and then like, I feel like we, you know, we went our separate ways. We like, we learned all these things about trails and like, we returned back and we were like, Hey, we're doing this thing. And they have been nothing but supportive. You know, they're like actively trying to get more and more grants to keep us busy. Cause they're like, we get more grants, we do more work, we get more money, we get more trails. Cause you guys are doing them. Right. And like, you know, they accept massive donations that allow us to like help work on the dirt jumps because the city doesn't have any money. Right. Like they're great. And, uh, it's really cool what they're doing for the scene, um, in Santa Fe. And you want to add to that, Ted? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, shout out to fat tire. They've definitely been a big part of our success in this area and, you know, they're really awesome to work with and it's really cool how they can integrate also like non club members or potential club members to come out and you know work alongside us on the trail which is cool to get the community involved and to kind of create this uh idea of community stewardship to the trail which is great you know and get them involved on constructing it and showing them how to take care of it and how to clean out drains and preventive maintenance and just stuff like that and yeah, it's just really cool to get the the whole community involved and get a, everyone stoked and I know that when Henry and I were growing up here in Santa Fe, we didn't know each other when we were, you know, younger riding in Santa Fe, but there wasn't a ton of like mountain bike specific or like jump specific stuff out there. And now that we're really putting more energy towards it, it's really cool to to build up the scene here because it's just it, every year it gets better and better to ride here. And Fat Tire is a really big contributing factor to that. And yeah, it's, it's really awesome to work alongside them. Well, in Santa Fe is a, a pretty awesome community just from a community perspective you know it's a it's a if i remember right it's a pretty iconic community in terms of films and arts mm -hmm. and then that region has maybe a few hot air balloon things going on so it's like yeah yeah 
you know, there's just a lot going on there. Yeah, there is. And I think like I was, we were literally having this conversation two nights ago with this woman we met who had like lived in Portland and she's like, yeah, like the outdoor scene here is fringe, right? Like you go to like where I used to live in Bend, it's just like, it's not fringe. (laughs) It's like front and center, you know, everything surrounding it. And I think in Santa Fe, like it's totally sidelined, you know, it's wild. Like you have a booming art scene, like, you know, incredible native art that's coming out of there and like thriving native culture and like, you know, the Northern New Mexico, Norteño culture too. And yeah, you have film going on. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about that. The architecture's wild, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. When yeah. I, when I think of Santa Fe specifically, I, I don't think of lack of funding as a state for New Mexico, maybe yes, but that city, I think there's some iconic entrepreneurs we're going to say that have maybe have homes there. Right. Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think, yeah, Santa Fe's more of the more, uh, fruitful, uh, cities in the state, but you know, as you branch further out, you definitely see those more, uh, like less supported communities and yeah, it's, yeah, we're excited to work on more access and yeah, just for those other communities that aren't just, you know, front and center Santa Fe, you know, but yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Cause like we, so we do a lot of work with the city. We like maintain, um, pump tracks and the dirt jumps and stuff like that. And a lot of it, most of it is volunteer. It's just like, cause we want, like, that's important. Like we're like, you know, we ride all these places and there's all these little kids out there riding. It's so like, of course we got to keep it going. <laughs> and, you know, we're like, we had a meeting with the city yesterday. We're like, Hey, can you throw us a bone this year? Like, how's it looking for funding? And they're like, no, nope, we don't have anything, but like, we'll keep trying to support you. And we're like, okay, <laughs> it's just, they can't maintain the ball fields, let alone like, you know, a couple thousand for a pump track, you know? But, you know, hopefully things change in the future. <laughs> and then you have the R&D side of things for testing ramps. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, the city, like, granted, sometimes, you know, they, I mean, they do support us a fair amount when they can, but also just the freedom that they give us to, you know, work on our local skills park and shape, like carve in a new line, you know, and they're just psyched about it. Right. And it's just, they're all for it. And they're definitely like supportive about us changing things and adding more and making improvements. And it's just really cool to see how many more users we have at those local dirt jump parks that are, you know, within five to 10 minutes of the heart of town, you know, that you can just access, you can even ride there. Right. I just remember like growing up riding when I was just starting like BMX racing and going to, we call it the trash pits. That's like our our main spot that we ride at, out at La Tierra, the Frijoles Trailhead, Bean Trailhead. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just I just remember riding out there when I was like 11, 12 years old, and I was amazed if I ran into someone else. And now we go there on a Thursday after work from five to sunset, and there's 30 people riding from ages, you know, five to 60 or even more, you know, and it's just so cool to see everyone just get together and just go have a nice casual after work session. So it's it's awesome to see the scene progressing in front of our eyes and being a part of it and trying to make it as awesome as we can. It, it definitely makes our work feel really special. So yeah, it's, it's cool to see it. Uh, and again, it's not like, like Henry was saying with Bend, Oregon, you go to the trailhead and there's 30 cars there. I mean, you could go ride in Santa Fe and never see anyone out on the, on any of the trail systems. So it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty sweet. I think it was Henry, you might've mentioned, um, uh, you're building in a, a national forest right now. 
What's the future look like in terms of stuff that's that's getting put in or maybe under contract with you guys for people to ride in the future, in the near future, that is? Yeah, I mean, we're actually working with two separate ranger districts right now and some for some like adaptive mountain bike trail, like big adaptive program um, through Fat Tire, of course. And uh, don't have too much to say on that yet, but that it's happening. And then, you know, the the Sandia stuff, you know, those the, some of the downhill trails in the Sandias outside Albuquerque. I mean, they've been there for 20 years and they're illegal. Right. And, you know, it just happened that there was this right storm of like, you know, you have the Albuquerque Mountain Bike Association putting in for grants to get them legitimized. You have a ranger district that's super excited on it. Right. You have a ski hill right there, like literally right next to it. That's thinking about development. And, you know, from like, you know, we're in it, right. We're just like, Oh my God, we're building these trails, blah, blah, blah. And then from like this macro perspective, looking at it, you're just like, wow, this is going to be like a destination shuttle park. (laughs) That's so cool in New Mexico on these legacy trails, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Like the forest service, like there's certain ranger districts in New Mexico that like won't even think about mountain biking. They're just like, nope. Like, in fact, we're going to close trails, right? And then you have ranger districts that are like, no, this is exactly what we want. Like, you have a rec division manager that's like, you know, loves riding. And then all of a sudden money and RFPs are just flying in, you know? (laughs) Isn't it interesting how that does change from district to district and how, you know, it's not, there's not consistency across the board on that? Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. (laughs) Because like you, like we were saying earlier, the terrain in Santa Fe specifically is amazing. Like for our local ski hill there, Ski Santa Fe, like from Santa Fe, you drive up a pretty windy road. It's it's about a 30 minute drive and you gain about 3,500 feet of vert. And um, the uh, New Mexico RTD has a free shuttle that you can take in the summer. It's got bike racks on it. It's, it's limited on how many people they can take up but you can ride a free shuttle up you know about a 45 minute ride and then you can drop the windsor trail which is like a 10 mile long downhill i mean it's not like a downhill track but it's a multi-use trail right but it's you you lose about three thousand vert on it in 10 miles and you just cruise down it and there's a bunch of creek crossings but which now fat tire installed a bunch of bridges which preserves the uh the uh, river quality yeah the water quality yeah because there's a bunch of fish in there which is pretty awesome but I mean, just that alone, like when I tell people that from that don't live here, I'm like, yeah, there's like this free shuttle bus that you can take up and do this like hour long downhill. Or if you want to do any extra credit, you can pedal up higher up to 12,000 feet and then drop 12,000 feet all the way down to Santa Fe. So, yeah, there's some pretty epic long descents, which, you know, with some help of some free transportation makes it pretty accessible, which is awesome. But with the ranger districts, yeah, it's like, we're hoping in the near future that the Santa Fe National Forest gets a little more on board with it because of that Windsor Trail. There's more, more and more people finding out about it and riding it, and you have those user conflicts. But obviously, that can be mitigated with more trail, which is a new trail, which is a tricky, tricky uh, topic for that district. But hopefully, that'll change in the near future. Henry, you're going to add something there. Exactly what he said. <laughs> it's just yeah, you have districts. Like that district in particular, you know, is they're not super open to doing something about user conflict, right? That's just kind of like, let's close it. Like, well, no, like we have a very like great plan to deal with this, you know, and like everyone to be happy. But, you know, you're just going to make people like make them outlaws. People are still going to go ride that, you know, I'm just like, so. 
Yeah, it's it's all over the board. And like, I think it's worth mentioning too. like the, uh, you know, two years ago, we had like, like the worst wildfire season that New Mexico has ever seen. Um, like in, you know, uh, yeah, the, like in documented history. And, you know, the outside the district where we're working on one of these projects, you know, 550,000 acres or whatever the number was burned. And everyone was getting like reshuffled and fired and like, just kind of like turmoil, you know? And I think that like with that turnover, like people are like, okay, like here are these areas that like, you know, are destroyed and we need to do some rehab and like, let's look at alternative ways to like get people into these spaces. And one of those is mountain biking. So silver lining there and uh, yeah, a lot, lot going on in the forest. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, it's awesome to hear though, that there's, especially the Sandia part that you talked about, Jenker Ted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I stayed at my buddy's place in Albuquerque a couple of years ago, I mean, you could see that stuff right from his house, you know? Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, from just, I'll briefly talk on the, uh, the fire and like with, with the project we're doing the Sandia is like the, the, the blue trail that we're building right now, it's like, we're building in a zone that they're masticating right now with one of those big masticator tractors, you know, and like they're, they're actively working on forest health mitigation, you know, and I, and I won't go too deep into it cause I'm not the most knowledgeable with that. And I'm not a wildland firefighter, so I don't want to get my toes too wet, but even like when you have new trails in an area where there's not any access that's like even if it's a mountain bike downhill trail that's still in theory like an access point for people to get into a, a, a densely thick forest to potentially fight or mitigate a fire you know which is a interesting thing but yeah it's pretty wild seeing how they're they're going about that forest there and they're really yeah being pretty progressive about it so yeah is this where we go into the bonus questions oh yeah Extra credit, baby. Extra credit. We're going to start with Henry. Yeah. <laughs> I came across a, a film on, a, on the TGR website called Visions Path, and that's a film that, that you had helped create or you created there, Henry. Let's talk about that film because that was created up in, up in Oregon, I, I believe, right? Yeah, Oregon and Washington both. Yeah. But yeah, that was a project that came about kind of organically with a childhood friend of mine um, who still does a lot of media work for us, an incredible filmer and filmmaker. And, uh, I'd been building a bunch of trails. They weren't exactly uh, sanctioned jump trails. <laughs> and, uh, and I felt like it was kind of like a volatile time in my life, a lot of transition, um, a lot of like uncertainty with work and whatever. And like the main outlet, which I've always used, but I really leaned on then was going to build trail, you know, and like building jumps and drops and whatever. And, that excitement, you know, of doing that kind of stuff and escaping into that world is really special to me. And it's like why we build trail. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, he he documented some of that that work. And I talked a little bit about like geology. I'm a geology major. So like, you know, understanding soil types and weathering and where to look for good soil and where not to go and utilizing geologic maps, you know, looking at zones and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a super fun project and, you know, I actually didn't get to ride too much um, because I broke my or I spiral fractured my tib fib and broke my ankle partway through the project. And then I broke my femur six months later <laughs> on the project. And yeah, so it, you know, it was kind of like also like reconciling with that and like 
how trail building remained constant through it all. And that's really what it's about. Riding it after you, that kind of like hardship is pretty special. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I thought the film was pretty awesome. I know like one of the reasons why this podcast was created because was because uh, I just don't think there's enough trail media out there. And so to come across that film and to find a film, you know, that was specific to trail building. Um, while there are others out there and they're becoming a little more common, it's awesome to find those, those films. And so thank you for creating that. Yeah. Nice. Thanks. I appreciate it. Glad you, glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah. Janker. Janker Ted, the racer. We kind of talked about this before I hit record and, and I don't know if, if you'll be able to go too deep on this, but your thoughts on the state of enduro racing and it's, it's changed. I think some, since you kind of gotten out of racing and more into trail building, but let's talk about enduro racing. Yeah. Man, enduro racing. I mean, that, uh, that was, uh, the, that was my main intro to mountain bike racing. I, I did a little bit of downhill racing, but the enduro was pretty, pretty exciting for me at the time when I first started doing it back in 2014. And I remember that one of the first race series I did was in New Mexico, in Glorieta, actually, it was the New Mexico enduro cup. They had a little series going for a little bit, which unfortunately is no longer, but yeah, I, I, at least for me, what I follow, like here in the Southwest and just in, in the States seems like, yeah, the scene is still going pretty strong. And obviously there's like race organizers that come and go, but I, it still seems like there's still a big demand for it. And a lot of people still competing and I don't really have too much to touch on, on the EWS level and how that's all changing, but at least for me, what I see, it seems like a lot of people are still really excited and the sport of enduro is growing and obviously changing. And they got the EMTBs in there, which is pretty cool. Honestly, I just got my first, or we just got our first e-bikes pretty recently. And yeah, it's just pretty badass. <laughs> it's just pretty fun. And it, honestly, I'd be curious to enter at e-enduro, see what that's all about, do some tech hill climbs or whatever they got going on. But it's cool to see it evolve and change. and. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's cool. I, I, I'd like to dabble back in on the racing a little bit, but my, my heart and soul is really in the, in the trail building at the moment. But well, yeah. one, of the, one of the new things I'm seeing, and maybe you guys have seen this, maybe not, but there's, there's a really strong resurgence for legit downhill racing happening. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a new downhill series. It's called the Monster DH series. But yeah, there's the new Monster Downhill series. And then Big Mountain mm -hmm. Enduro, as you've talked about a little bit, you know, they've right. added a downhill, you know, series to their Enduro series, which is pretty awesome to see that, you know, really start to take off. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that actually, I was going to mention that. Yeah. The, the BME DH. Yeah. And you know, those guys definitely know how to throw on a, a really good, awesome Enduro race. So I'm sure they'll do the same for the DH and it's cool that, yeah, the, the spirit of downhill racing is still alive and even like you know, in Tennessee at Wind Rock in that area, like they're still, I feel like they're all for downhill racing. And that Wind Rock Park is an amazing spot for downhill racers to train in the winter. And yeah, it's cool that there's a lot of individuals around in different regions still promoting it. And yeah, it's, it's really cool to see. And I mean, the bike parks are still alive, you know, like they're still there and I feel like there's still new ones are popping up everywhere, lift access, which is really exciting. And Obviously that comes with the DH, you know, and, and Enduro, but yeah. Downhilling the Rockies too. Oh yeah. Worth that's noting. True. And trail party, you know, those two, I guess. Yeah, trail party. Yeah. 
because that that's pretty sweet. It's cool to see like Mountain States Cup vibes kind of return to the Southwest. You know, mm-hmm. got Parito and Angel Fire and Crested Butte. You know, Keystone. Like yeah. I don't even have to do in Keystone. I don't know what it, what their schedule is this year, but I don't know. It feels cool to see that again because the Mountain States Cup, I feel like, was like peak DH in the Southwest, and then it just like went away. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely had a decline stateside, and I don't know why that is, because I think we were super strong in the 90s and early 2000s when it came to, like, talent, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, it, it went away, but I think, like, everything ebbs and flows with cycles right now. I think we're just on the upswing when it comes to, like, legit full-on gravity. Yeah, totally. I think a lot of that is in thanks to Nico Malali, who, you know, his family really pushed the downhill southeast thing, and then... When he started his, you know, frameworks program, that that started spurring some more U.S. stuff, and and then you just have a lot of kids that are really on the come up, you know, and I, I, I don't know, maybe they're kids, but I'm saying like 16, 15, 16, 17 year olds that are just super, super talented, and I think we're gonna see a new crop of uh, talent really come out of the United States, which which is gonna be awesome to see. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and. Henry briefly mentioned Pajarito Bike Park. I don't know if that's ever been on your radar, but that's another New Mexico staple lift access bike park that's worth mentioning because I feel like I've ridden a decent amount of lift access bike parks through racing and that bike park really has such a unique, (laughs) like raw sort of North Shore feel to it. And it's definitely worth checking out. And that place is definitely under new man- management and there's definitely some new stuff in the pipeline there that's uh, worth looking forward to in the near future. And it's, and it's closer to Santa Fe than angel fire, which is, it's only like 45 an hour away versus going to angel fire. So it's a little bit closer and the views there uh, incredible and it's just a pretty awesome area. Yeah. Also like the, the funny thing about Parito, like I'm glad you brought it up because that's like one of our favorite bike parts. And like, we were back, we had some ramps at Benville bike fest last year and we were hanging out with some dudes at the tent and, you know, we were telling them about kind of like the New Mexico scene, you know, we told them about Parito and we're like, here's a hill where like the easiest trail down is like hard blue, easy black and everything else is double black diamond, hundred <laughs> yeah, percent. Straight fall. <laughs> like, and they're like, what? No way. You know, <laughs> cause it's just like you know, that's just not fathomable to them, like being in Bentonville, you know, and like, granted, like, you know, they want to increase access at Parito and, um, that's part of their, their other plans, but it's just wild that you have this like gnarly, gnarly mountain. That's just so salt of the earth. Like all these consistent dudes who like maintain the trails, all volunteer building wood features that are just massive, you know, and you're just like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They have a corkscrew there like suspended in the trees which is pretty dirty and like with a cannon at the end <laughs> yeah like if once you drop in it's pretty committing and there's some pretty epic long log skinnies and yeah even just the chairlift is pretty exciting to ride like when you unload you have to like dodge out to either side like it will get you if you're not on it like can't be on your phone or anything like it's uh it's a real experience up there it's pretty cool it's yeah just super old school and it's like small ski resort, like classic feel. I don't know. It's yeah, pretty definitely worth looking to. Yeah, yeah. Like for sure. sick trail. Like so yeah. sick. <laughs> yeah. So Pajarito's been on my radar only in the sense that I unless it's changed ownership, I think it's owned by the same management company that also has Spider Mountain. 
Yeah. yeah Brinehead, Sipapu, Spider. Mm-hmm. Some places in Chile now, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and they also have, uh, they have Purgatory, I want to say. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so that management companies, cause, cause I, I had Spider Mountain on, shit, it's been two years now that I had uh, Spider Mountain on here, you know? So it's awesome to see that a company like that is, is embracing the mountain biking side of things. Cause I think that's the future of, of outdoor recreation in terms of summer. You, you, you got to embrace the four season stuff, right? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And they, so then, like they brought in a new manager for Paha specifically. And then he's like, he worked at, uh, Oh, what the it's next to where Adams and building trail in Maine. Um, he worked at that ski resort up Killington? there. Um, or it's sugar or what, what is the name of that one? Cause Sugarloaf is Sugarloaf is where Adam is, right? Correct. Sugar Adams at Sugarloaf. And then it's, it's really, it's right next door. It's in the, um, well, there's only like the 500 Cuyahoga resorts Valley. up there. <laughs> but anyway this dude like he he's he's worked on a bunch of those ski resorts that were just kind of like you know kind of falling in disrepair you know and like got them kind of back on their feet and that's his specialty and that's why james coleman like brought him on i guess to you know get things going at paha and he's like already doing so much i mean the plans he has we're just like like yeah like let's go when you say spiral with a cannon at the end Uh uh-huh like the visual of that is pretty awesome in your head. I think if you go to their homepage on their website, I'm pretty sure it's on there, which is hilarious. Like this like old ass wood feature. <laughs> it's so cool, man. Yeah. I think you spirals go are going to become more of a thing in mountain biking. Just, just watch and see. Yeah. It. Oh yeah. I know. Yeah. We built one, uh, at Shepard actually a pretty big spiral too, or corkscrew or whatever you want to call it. But Yeah. And yeah, the one at Parito doesn't have railings, so like you can you can go off it. <laughs> That's that oh, sounds that sounds pretty incredible. I, you know, honestly though, like the comeback story of of resorts, like where I live, there's a little ski hill that that I go to, and actually I work there part time, called Mount Lacrosse, and no one's ever heard of it. And I say when I when I go skiing, they're like, "Oh, where do you ski?" And I'm like, "Oh, Mount Lacrosse." You know, makes sense. I live in Lacrosse, right? But it's a, it was built in the 50s, and it's got like super old school two person lifts that are from the well, sixties and seventies. And I just said, there's a soft spot in my heart for old resorts that are making a comeback. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. That's Parito right there. <laughs> it's cool. Like we talked about this with the, the GM or not the GM, but the, the new manager there. I don't know. Is that a GM? I don't know. <laughs> but he was like, I was like, you go to like any other bike park around here and you're like paying for parking and like, food's expensive and like you know you're just like ah and then you go to paha and you like you know you park at the bottom of the lift <laughs> you know you're like right there with like the 20 other people that ride there every single weekend who are like pretty much responsible for building the place and you just meet all of them and you ride with them all day and it's so amazing you have people like that have never in before or like you know beginners and they're like oh we'll show you around you know come on in on it's just fall like line trail. such a cool scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like get ready. And then you'll go eat a $5 Frito pie at the, like at the lodge. It's just like, Oh man, this is like, like, just like, you know, good bike park culture. <laughs> you gotta keep that spirit alive. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
Ted and Henry, do we have anything that we haven't discussed? Because the Paha thing wasn't on my radar in terms of like a topic of discussion, but I'm super glad we got into that. Oh yeah. We love, we love talking about Paha. (laughs) No, I don't, I think we kind of, I mean, there's endless stuff about, I mean, we love New Mexico. We could talk on and on and on about it, but you know, it's a special place. I'll say that. And there's so many more gems like that out there in the state. And yeah, definitely be on the lookout for stuff coming out of the state in the future. How about you, Jenker Ted? What do you got for closing? Uh, closing. Yeah, we'll see you out here, man, this summer, dude. Hopefully we'll <laughs> see you. Come check it out. Bring us yeah. some cheese from your area. <laughs> well, we got cheese, all right. Although yeah. there's, you know, I, I think we have uh, some competition with uh, cheese out of Oregon, too. So the total oh, yeah. cheese out of uh, the co- Oregon coast. But it's not nice. Wisconsin Played cheese. Out, man. Yeah, yeah, we'll get you on the chili, dude. Yeah, we got the chili here. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Nice, man. Well, yeah, thanks for your time. I appreciate you having us on. I think that's all I got as well, but yeah. Yeah. You got any anything you want to shout out there quick, Henry? Uh, No, just appreciate you, uh, you having us and chatting and yeah, I love the podcast and stoked to be stoked to be a part of it and hope to see you down in the States in the near future or down in New Mexico. Yeah, I, have a, I do have reasons to go to New Mexico, so that's... The likelihood of all, of all the people I get to interview and places to go, New Mexico is definitely on the uh, shorter list, list, shorter places, shorter list of places to come back to. So I, I do nice. love well, that you place. Come here. This yeah. is your destination. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I know you're on, you're on vacation up in Summit County and we didn't get where you, I'm assuming you're in Santa Fe, Ted. Yeah. But yeah, we're just, I'm just here in San Fe, just skiing around. Well, yeah, man. I really appreciate you guys coming on and, and taking the time out of your afternoon to, to get this one recorded. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thanks, brother. We'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, A small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.